Welcome to Wisdom Exchange TV, where we interview women leaders internationally who've had a social impact in their communities and beyond. I'm Suzanne F. Stevens, Conscious Contribution Cultivator for the You, Me, We Social Impact Group, and your host. In this episode, we'll provide actual conscious contribution insights to create social impact to empower you, your organization, and your community. Lots of learning and inspiration, all to make your contribution count. We invite you to join the conversation and post questions on our guest's exclusive Wisdom Exchange TV page. This week's guest is Peggy Shaughnessy, CEO and founder of White Path Consulting and the developer of Red Path Programs. Peggy has worked extensively with the Corrections Service of Canada to educate staff and management on Indigenous peoples' issues. She provides needs assessments for Indigenous men and women offenders and has developed programs to assist both Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples in their life struggles. Her programs deal with issues related to addiction, domestic abuse, bullying, and empowering self, to just name a few. Peggy is an expert in rehabilitation psychology and has worked directly with many individuals, organizations, and communities across Canada for the past 20 years to resolve people's struggles with mental health and addiction. Peggy believes in the power of connecting the disconnected. Let's welcome Peggy O'Shaughnessy to Wisdom Exchange TV. I'm so excited to interview you, uh, particularly because of your background and the focus you've put on Indigenous peoples over your career, and particularly mental health, which is such an important topic now and always has been in the last few years, just gained momentum. But particularly now with the pandemic, people are really acknowledging the fact that mental health is such an important piece. And it really, we really need to focus on it for our marginalized communities. So welcome, and I really look forward to speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me this morning. It's great being here. Um, and yes, you're totally correct. Um, we're coming out of a pandemic, we hope, and uh, it's time to step back and really open our minds and look at what is innovative and what's new. You've been doing this for 20 years now, as I said it in your introduction. So what was the catalyst for you starting White Path? So I was during my undergraduate degree, I started visiting the Native Brotherhood at one of the federal prisons. And I really saw the lack of support these men had coming out of prison. And so that sort of, I, be, I had a passion, I guess, that I wanted to help these people coming out of prison. Coming out of prison, why did you choose that beneficiary to benefit from your knowledge? I guess one of the biggest things was because I could have been in prison myself. So I guess we are always attracted to something that we're most familiar with and dysfunction was part of my own life. Why don't we dive into that a little further, some, some dysfunction. Uh, can you explain exactly what that entailed and then how that transitioned you into pursuing a career in therapy? In my own childhood, um, I experienced every kind of dysfunction or trauma one could experience. My parents were very not in love and I was sort of one that witnessed it. And my mother was a prostitute, so I watched that as well. So um, I lost my both parents when I was nine and my grandparents raised my sister and I. So it was something that I fell through many cracks myself and needed to uh, come up with some kind of thing that I wasn't so angry. To, to have such trauma and then to pivot, uh 
to something so meaningful. Do you recall the time when you decided to make that pivot? Like, was there a moment or was it a reflection or was it just a series of traumatic events that made you all of a sudden say, I have to change my course? Yes, I think it comes to the point where you get tired of it. You get tired of punching your way through a bar or being angry at the world because your life was worse than everybody else's. So I think eventually the heaviness itself became too heavy to carry. Do you remember the moment that you just, or was there a moment? I think there was moments. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't think it could be just one moment when it's, there was so much dysfunction. And I think even at my age today, I still have moments that re- that sort of is a reminder, which then shows me that there's something else that needs work on my own self today. I remember reading something about you where you had said that you're still doing the work, even though you're in a position and have an expertise and have you're working on your dissertation at this point in your career. But in the process of helping others, you're still doing the work. Talk a little bit about that. When I worked in one of the federal prisons, I had the greatest opportunity to work with an elder, old George, we called him. And he told us that we have four rooms. We have our physical, our emotional, our psychological, and our spiritual. And if we don't visit each one of those rooms each day, we'll never be in balance. So it's something that I created the four room theory where very quickly I can go through those four rooms and see where in my own self today do I need some work? And am am I crying and my emotions are out of whack? Or is my thinking off that it needs to step back and do I still have a connection? So my mission in my business is connecting the disconnected. And I think we get disconnected our own self. I think that's so powerful is connecting the disconnected. So as we already discussed, you started in the prisons to help the disconnected to become connected. But you didn't stay in the prisons. You decided to shift again. Once you started down this path, you shifted your business. Why did you do that? Well, I think in business, we always have to be looking at where we need to shift. And so I didn't feel that I was able to get to the amount of people that I wanted to get or that I could reduce recidivism within the walls that were holding the inmates themselves. So that then took me to starting going to communities and many remote communities to see how I could leave something behind that they could use themselves for their own journey. One of the conversations, and there's so many during this pandemic that have really risen to the top. And one of those also is seeing less people in prisons. So when you make the comment that you couldn't make the change there, why do you think that is? You know, a systemic, you know, if you look at who's in prison, it's usually the minorities in our society. And it's often the ones that have mental health. And so those two things. And then especially with this pandemic, as you started out this conversation today, mental health and addiction, that isn't something new. It's just we see it more because we're not so busy. And so many people that are held within the prison walls have mental health and some form of addiction which needs to be worked on, but the system isn't set up that way. So what do you think needs to happen to help with mental health to avoid prisons in the first place? Well, I think we have a society right now that we're so geared on mental health, but we're looking at the behavior itself. So I think it's time to step back. We're not allowed to be sad anymore. 
we have these systems in place that if you witness somebody with certain behaviors, then you're supposed to report it. And so now we have lineups because people are sad and they're in the lineup with the people that might be clinically depressed or, or have schizophrenic tendencies. And now the lineup's so big that it's become too big. It's creating a bigger problem when there's areas that we could be working on with some people in a, a different um, venue. That's an interesting comment on so many levels. Through the pandemic, the conversation in mental health has even escalated more. And I mean, over the last five years, we've seen it escalate. But people that weren't necessarily sad are feeling it now because of our circumstances. It's, you know, you, you said it's time. I, I would suggest it could be time, but it also could be the fact that many of us don't know where our next paycheck is coming from. We don't know how we're going to manage our children anymore. We're overwhelmed with all the additional stresses in our lives and realize that we're not doing well. So I'm curious, now that that lineup, as you suggested, is so much longer, what do you think we need to do in society to help those, those people? Because they're different groups, are they not? Well, I think all of us have mental health. I think that's the biggest problem is it's become so stigmatized that we all don't realize that we need to go through those four rooms each day to see where we're not really balanced. And that if we're not really balanced, then when something like this hits, it affects us even more so. And so people need to learn how to work with themselves in order to see what they're carrying. And, and you know, in a pandemic, is the greatest time. I think we have to step back and, and see, yes, we have to pay our bills, but why, are, why is all those things that we just left behind us so important to us? And so you still look at the amazing things that have occurred during this pandemic, like this sort of community building on groups online that if you need groceries or if you need certain things, people are dropping off groceries and that to people's doorsteps that they don't even know. So, you know, is it time to look at is the things that we can we leave the things behind that we just went through and can we come up with what we're trying to talk today about different models where of self-reflection that mindfulness you know really grabbed the hold why was that so you know there's many things that have people are really searching and have always been searching for these self-help books and these self-help things because there's something that they just don't know why they're carrying it this episode is sponsored by Make Your Contribution Count for You, Me, We, a book written by Suzanne F. Stevens. It's time to act. Let this book be your guide to having a sustainable social impact while living your most meaningful life. Thanks for listening. Now, back to our show. Now, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's so many good things that have come from this pandemic, and because you know, Wisdom Exchange TV is produced by You, Me, We, we really, that's where I'm focusing, is focusing on who's come together, who's come to the call, and we celebrate them on our, on our website, because there has been so many things that have happened, and we do realize now, probably more than ever, how interconnected we actually are, and I think that is such an important message, and that I hope so many people take away from this. Because you work with, I know you work with Indigenous peoples and also non-Indigenous peoples, but I want to focus on the Indigenous for a moment. How do you connect with that beneficiary in, in your work and help them 
tap into those four rooms? Well, my connection started with helping indigenous offenders being released from prison. So they all didn't come to my city where I'd have all the police on my doorstep. But um, so many of them, I helped reconnect with their community and put in place a plan for um, a better successful reintegration. So when a community would say to me, these are all the things that they had for that inmate to come back to, I would ask them to put down the brochure and really tell me what they had in their community. Because when Joe at two o'clock in the morning needs supports, is their office going to be closed? So they're, you know, trying to get them to go beyond what their mandate of their organization was and how can, as a community, can they help Joe reintegrate better? So that's how my connection started, um, working with communities across Ontario and many Northern. And then um, when I decided to start going into communities to train people on my, my programs, I already had those connections put in place. Which is fabulous going into the community. So now you train people within the community to do the Red Path program? So it, it started that way. First, I started doing workshops. So, you know, I, I did workshops across the country on opiate misuse, um, crystal meth, um, many of the different trauma, um, very, quite a few workshops. I started crossing the country doing that. And then I'd have many people coming from organizations and communities to listen to me give them tips on how to do certain things that they might not be doing. And then that took me starting, I think the mop, the Paw Manitoba in 2002 was my first training. I was in the Yukon at the time and I got a call and said, you're coming home, you need to be in the Paw. So I started going into communities and training them and I started training them to deliver five different programs that I, that I had developed. I had developed originally an emotion management program, but unfortunately, the government doesn't fund in emotional management. So that took me back to the table to look at addictions and violence and bullying and those types of things and look at them at different angles because you have to come at them on different angles. So as somebody that also trains for, for a living, this has been my experience and I'm curious on yours. It's one thing to train and it's another thing that the organization or in your case, the community embeds those philosophies in the community to help provide that support. What measures did you have in place to, to help them or to see if your training was having the impact that you intended? Well, I had created with Dr. James Parker in the psychology department at Trent, a scale call, which I called the Aboriginal Assessment Inventory. And we looked, it was, it was based on emotional intelligence. And so we, we had looked at Baron has a, a big scale. He was one of the first to create it. And, the alexithymic scale, which you have a feeling but you can't express it in words, is alexithymia. My colleague, he was part of the development of the Toronto alexithymic scale, which allowed me then to use it and to see if it was generalizable to Aboriginal populations. That's the first thing you have to do is to make sure, what are you measuring what you're setting out to measure? I was able to then take that scale and put it into a circle and when the frontline worker gets it back that they, even if they didn't have education, would be able to understand where that person needed work. So that's how we started to try to figure out what did people really need the most work in. So that scale is used pre and post um, treatment and we can then look at the individual and how the group itself was able to do it. And then we're able to give that scale, like those measurements back to the community to be able to use back into their next proposal to, to show the government of change and, and the government always likes to see numbers. So 
we would help them then with that proposal as well. Um, those are things we put in place because we know even though numbers may not be important to them, they're important to the funder. That is one of the big things that we were able to do for the communities to be able to take something that if you might not be educated in the science world and understand what you're getting back and be able to use those analysis then for future funding. What did you do or did you do anything specific to have the community ingratiate you to assist them? Well, I'm sure you're aware of residential schools. So, you know, you have five generations of people that have been exposed or not only witnessed, but probably it occurred to them as well, sexual assault, physical abuse. And no one's really looking at the underlying one of subjugation and domination by the state. And so you have a group of people and not all people, but many people that always feel less than someone else, inferior, inferior to other people. That, that's a big cloud to be under. And so by going into communities and just starting with underlying traumas, and then moving um, beyond that so that they themselves see individually what needs to needs work. So, I mean, it's, it's not hard to measure success when you have a group of people that have been so traumatized. They were receptive to, I'll just say it, a white woman coming in again, guiding them on, on what to do, what, you know, which has caused the problem in the first place. So what did you do to get to bridge yourself to understand what was going on and also open them up to actually taking advice and counsel from you? Well, I think what, what I was able to do, and I always tell people, like maybe I'm the interpreter, where I was able to work with elders, not just within prisons, but across Canada and receive wonderful teachings that helped guide me on my own journey was able to take something that I think already existed within the philosophy of many of these um, nations and take something and put it together into a process that showed change. Fabulous. Now we did touch on again, so many things you're, you're, what you're doing right now are extremely topical and the opioid crisis is one of those things that there's a lot of conversation on how to address the issue. And I know newspapers in the last couple of weeks, it's again, a topic that's escalating from making, making drugs free so that people that we can monitor. And we've seen this in some areas in Toronto and in Vancouver and that sort of thing. I'm just curious from your perspective, what do you think would help reduce the addiction of opioids? Well, I think the concentration is so much on the drug that we're forgetting about the people. And so again, it's as a society, we can only measure what we see. So it's the behavior of the drug taking itself instead of looking at the underlying issues on why one needs to take something in the first place. So I always say that addictions is not the problem. The problem is the, is the underlying issues. You know, people only use for two reasons most often, and one is to numb the pain or feel again. And so we have to figure out why one needs to numb pains or why one has been so numb their whole life that they want to feel. And that's where you come in. Exactly. We currently have been very busy because of the pandemic to mainly frontline workers. Now, I was a nurse for 20 years and we had uh, nurses even back then, imagine, um, getting addicted to narcotics. So this isn't something new again. It's just something that 
shows its face in a larger capacity, especially when people are dying. You know, we've had heroin for a long, long time injecting. That's why we had methadone clinics open in the first place. Now it just seems to be that's the answer. I'm not saying that methadone should be closed down because it shouldn't. I'm not saying that safe injection sites shouldn't be used because they should be. And um, safe drug supply, I think, probably is a good idea. But everybody assumes that everybody's going to get free drugs and then everybody's going to be addicted and then we're going to have more crime rate. Instead of looking at why is poverty always the underlying issue, you know, looking bigger at society, you know, people are hurting right now because they don't make their big paychecks. Now they have a little bit of an understanding and empathy on why one that is always in poverty feels like they do. Well, you know, that's a whole other conversation. And because I think you're bringing up a really good point is now that we, the, the, the person, the, the citizen that usually can pay their paychecks and their family and all of a sudden is struggling may have more empathy for somebody who's always been struggling. And I, and haven't we seen that with George Floyd? All of a sudden we saw something on video and this has been going on for years where uh, black men and indigenous men and indigenous women, which is another conversation altogether, have been treated poorly in our society. And all of a sudden when we see it on video, we start paying attention. So it's, it's interesting that I like your parallel, all of a sudden now that more of society is suffering, perhaps more of society would realize that we have to do something about it. Throwing money at it isn't going to be the answer. Like, I just hope that a lot of organizations don't take advantage of this right now and waste money on things that shouldn't be, like our, our concentration has to change. Our, our whole outlook has to change coming out of this or we're just going to be wasting a lot of money. So let's go to that. Here's the reality. You have a business and business needs money. <laughs> so you're not a non-for-profit, but you are a social enterprise. Now, what are the two most challenging hurdles to sustain your social impact? We'll start there and then we'll get into your social enterprise itself. Well, I, I think that sometimes society gets confused or maybe they don't understand what a social enterprise really is. And so they confuse us with the one percenters of corporations. So um, we get stuck then when you're like, I am in a business that is trying to make social change. I'm sort of being looked at not very nicely by some not-for-profits that think I'm there to take over their money and that everything's going to be privatized. So that becomes a very big issue because right now we have our community where I live that is really, really suffering with opioid crises and the money's being directed to the not-for-profits that close their doors because of the pandemic. So we've got an increase in opiate use and less services. And we've had about 30 deaths already in a city of 80,000 people. So that's very interesting that you could still do the work, but now they have nowhere to go. People with the challenge, is that what you're saying? I am, we have people coming out of jails, we have with nowhere to go, that, you know, there's not even the services there to help people, to guide them where they're supposed to go. So that makes our business much busier um, because that human contact is what really needs to, that's coming out of this, we really realize what the importance of human contact. 
Are you able to provide the services then? We have been providing them. Um, maybe that's where social enterprise comes in, where you know, you're able to make money in one area and, and maybe the odd person you can see then that might not be able to afford to, to pay. And so uh, you try to balance that off. You're offering a lot of your services for free then? Currently, I'm also in talks with the government with sort of a plan coming out of the pandemic. So I'm hoping that as we move forward that we'll be able to merge or not merge, but partnership more with some not-for-profits to show that we really can work together. Which is such a good strategy, right, is, is collaborating because the expertise is there and the problem is bigger than the nonprofit in your organization. Right. And it would also encourage other people if they knew they can run something sustainably because nonprofits have a, a, a different reporting system than a social enterprise actually has. So what are some of the ways that you are able to make income to help sustain your organization? Well, we do several things and I also own a restaurant. So which, you know, we had to lay a few people off, but I'm able to then use if one's doing better than the other, they sort of help each other out. So trying to always be looking at what can we also be doing in another venture that can help each venture out. We've been able to do that for about 10 years or so. And it's been very helpful, especially in the area that I'm working at where I can work with a client and then throw them in the dish, dish room or, you know, to start teaching them some social skills, especially men coming out of prison. And then eventually, gradually, they get into different areas that they have more contact with people and, and things like that. So I've been able to, over the last 20 years, look at different things and what needs to be changed and, and how can we make money in this area that will help with the other area when things aren't as good. So you're hiring people in at your restaurant. What's the name of your restaurant? Whistle Stop Cafe. Some of those people or all of those people have been prisoners in the past? Correct. So I have, you know, life or working for me. I have like different um, people coming out of, not all of them are, but like some of them are coming out of prison or, you know, we have, we work with different employment agencies to help people that, you know, people with Asperger's and things that may not get a job because they don't have the social cues during the interview in order to get the job. Almost like in some cases a rehabilitation, in some cases offering to a minority that would not otherwise have access to having an income. Correct. Which is fabulous that you're able, your social enterprise is able to also have another social enterprise, which one feeds the other. In regards to White Path Consulting, how many employees do you have or collaborators do you have? So I have 10 that works at the White Path Consulting. I have about 22 that works at the Whistle Stop. So about 32 employees. The, the 10 that they will go to different communities. Now, do you have licenses for other people to actually train your material in communities? So anyone that's been trained as a Red Path frontline worker gets licensed. So they have to go through an intensive three-day training. Um, and there's just, right now, there's three of us that do that. And, but we've currently been doing it online as well. We go into, it depends on the community and, and, and the access that they have to internet. So some communities don't have a very good connection. So that's an area that we might have to fly. But to go to the James Bay, for instance, it costs $3,000 return just to go to Fort Albany. And then sending your materials ahead of time, you're looking at 
hundreds of dollars just for shipment and hope when you send them two weeks before that they're there when you arrive. There's a lot of problems getting things and the expense of it. So a lot of those, we've been able to cut the cost by training online with just like we're doing today. You can still do pretty good training where you can have somebody from BC, somebody from New Brunswick and somebody from Northern Ontario all together, which they wouldn't necessarily be together. So we train people, then they get licensed and we keep a strict file on who's been licensed and who hasn't. We've had calls. I remember one call from a probation officer was so-and-so trained in the red path and we looked up and they hadn't. So then we had to get lawyers to look at, you know, because we have it right in the front that this is this manual you must be licensed to to use through this you're also talking about something that's also risen to the top as a conversation another one of sustainability is access to the internet which in rural communities has been proven to be very challenging for people so it would sound like if more people had access to the internet you would be able also to coach more people that are the beneficiaries of your program, not only the people that to facilitate it, but also the beneficiaries of your program and reach more people at a reduced cost. Is that fair? Correct. I think the internet really opens the door for many, many things. And there's certain times when, like, if I was going to work in a remote community, I would first go there and show that we had a connection, that, you know, that human humanness or that hug or whatever one may be or if you were even compatible to to begin with to work together and then i think the success is much greater when then you start working on something like we're doing right now and there's that connection now you can't do that to everyone but for certain groups of people i think that it's important that human touch and that chemistry that we don't seem to get online um, as if you were and I were having this discussion in the same room. I love what you're saying in the sense that you still need that human connection and then you can go remote, but you really do need to feel connected and particularly with what you're doing. I mean, you're dealing with a lot of people with, uh, with trauma that they need to have that high trust and there's no better way to get high trust than face to face. Something else I find interesting about this too is, you know, I've done a ton of work in Africa and in the rural communities, although not perfect either, I find that the internet in some of the rural communities in Africa is so much better than it is in Canada. However, it is curious that in a developed country that we can't even provide our indigenous peoples and people in rural communities the access to internet. If more people in the rural communities had access to the internet, how do you think that would impact your ability to coach and work with people with trauma? Well, it would really open the door and it would really create a lot of employment. And I think with what I'm doing, it can create employment right across the country because with using such innovative in, you know, ways, um, the people don't necessarily, and we learned this again from this pandemic, be in the same building. And so it could open the door to some of the best workers that you could have that necessarily aren't even in your own city um, that are working with people coming out of jail just having difficulties just in their daily life, so which is affecting their employment in many other areas. 
and, and, you know, and youth right now, we're going to see a big, big increase in youth um, coming out of this pandemic that we really need to look at, um, not just in First Nation communities, but in, our, in all, all parts of society. Um, I think this has really affected the youth much greater than what we're even looking at. And youth that are used to um, being with friends and sports and all of those things that keep our youth's mind clear and, and being able to function in their day. I have eight grandchildren, and so I've really seen the effects of even my grandchildren um, with this pandemic. Do you have any leadership techniques that you employ that embraces diversity? Because really, that's what you are doing. Well, I think as a leader, you're only a leader with the people that you surround yourself with. And so it's always been my philosophy that they become part of my family. And so that connecting, connect, that we're connected, like I'm trying to connect the disconnected, is part of my daily life. And so, you know, many people that I employ may not um, have family, you know, they will come to my house for Christmas. So um, I think leadership is you surround people, you surround yourself with people that then become part of your leadership almost. I think that is very, very important. Um, I think the, the second leadership that they realize that you're not perfect and that you ask the people what their input would be, I think it's very important to always be humble. And um, the third one, I think, is to always make sure that you have something else in place that you can fall upon so that you don't collapse. Because right now we saw that with who's going to still have a door to open when we come out of this pandemic. And what did those businesses or those organizations have in place just in case? Which really leads to the next question, which is collaboration. And what role does collaboration play in your organization? It, it is the top thing, collaboration, because I have to collaborate with perhaps maybe the funder, whether it be the government, whoever, the church, maybe whoever wants to um, help with, with that funding for, or, you know, for me, it isn't funding because I'm not a not-for-profit. But so it, it's always collaboration. It's collaboration with communities. It's collaboration with just the person sitting in front of you. So if we didn't have collaboration, I wouldn't exist. And that being said, I mean, you still can collaborate with the government because the government does pay consulting companies right. to assist and execute. So just for, for clarity. So that, that's also an important collaboration as well. Which collaborator have you found to help you most effectively to have the social impact that you've had? I think the biggest collaborator I ever had was a lobbyist um, in, in, a, in a position that I'm in. I think I never realized the importance of a lobbyist that knows their way around many different gates that I never knew existed. And so I think as a business and as a social enterprise, and, and I say that in my area because, you know, it's always trying to work with the government, even to help First Nation communities or communities, um, maybe ne not necessarily the money coming directly to me, but it's knowing where you're the expert and where you need collaboration to help you stay as the expert. So it's like being an artist, are you going to be the marketer? Or are you going to be the artist? And so for me, and to be able to keep my concentration on what I do best, and that's writing programs, training, and educating, 
Um, I don't have the time to do all of those other things, nor do my staff. So it's the collaboration with and somebody outside of your organization that will help you become more successful. Yes, yeah, so sort of filling in the areas that aren't necessarily your strengths, but are their strengths. So seeking right. those out, yeah, which is definitely a great way to approach it. Moving on a little bit to you, what have you done in your world's probably a very uncomfortable world, but if there was one or two things that you've done that have made you really uncomfortable, but if you didn't do them, you would not have the impact on the beneficiary that you have. So I think like if I look at my whole life, I think it's all, all been an experience. Someone living with living experience. Um, you know, I, you asked me about drugs. I've held on to them. I, I moved drugs for a large bike gang um, during my teenage years and saw people die and, and saw many things that I didn't really want to be part of. And I think I had an uncle that was a, a staff sergeant on the police force head of drug squad and he always used to say that I was going to go to reform school so I think that fear of that but um, knowing what could have happened to me or how the world in the underground sort of runs sort of allows me then to see who might uh, be trying to pull the wool over my eyes or whatever of people that I'm working with to be able to understand that hey I've been there too you're you're full of it because that I know that's not correct so I think it's my lived experience that will always outweigh my doctorate once I get that, even though my doctorate is important for the world that I'm in. So why are you the right person to lead this initiative? Well, I think, you know, compassion is probably my biggest and fierce, being fierce is, is two of the things that um, I think that drives me. And I think that, you know, I've always, I realized that, why the creator sent me here and that was to leave something behind. And so this long journey of a PhD, I'm going into my sixth year right now and I need to get it done. It's been a really hard journey and it hasn't been for myself. It's so I can leave something behind so somebody else can grab a hold of that piece of thread I'm leaving and put another thread in at some point that blanket's gonna be, be completed. So how has White Path Consulting provided meaning in your life? It is my life. It has been my journey. I've had tears, I've had laughter, but it's White Path is, is something that I started because I knew that there were things in our society that needed to change and it's a slow, slow process and it, it's really, really, sometimes you just wanna throw in the towel, but um, you know that that's not gonna help anybody if you do that. Thank you. I'm going to ask you some just rapid fire questions. So just short, sweet answers. First thing that comes to your mind, no right or wrong. It's all about you. <laughs> so what is the one thing you wish you knew prior to engaging down this path? I think the hurdles. And I think that often the hurdles sometimes want you to quit. And so I wish somebody could have told me something, how to get across those hurdles easier. Worst piece of advice you ever received? When are you going to sell it? I, uh, with my restaurant, we have a lot of fights and that after the bars and my mother-in-law or my uncles would call and say, when are you selling it? And so you should sell it. And uh, I didn't listen. So I guess the advice I didn't take, but um, there's lots of people that, you know, are fearful when I go into some communities that might, there might be violence. Um, 
So I've never, that's advice that I've never taken, but it's been poor advice. And at the same time, a lot of people wouldn't have a place to work if you didn't provide that rehabilitation. So I appreciate that. Best piece of advice you've ever received? I think old George, the teachings about the four rooms and about my journey is, is probably the greatest. Old George died the day my grandson was born. And so I think he left a little piece of him behind. Besides yours, which beneficiary do you think needs the most investment, time, resources, money? Homelessness. What advice would you give to your 10-year-old daughter? So I know you have daughters, but if one was 10 years old today, what advice would you give her? Well, my granddaughter's 10, and I always tell her, you can be whatever you want to be. What advice do you wish you received? You can be whatever you want to be. Who is the greatest female influence in your life? My daughter. I work, my daughter works with me and uh, I have three daughters, but my one daughter works for me and uh, she uh, is the greatest. Just say the first word that comes to your mind and then we'll wrap up. All right, you ready? Right. (laughs) Empower. Creative. Inclusive. I wish. Um, Care. Love. Courage. Might. Contribute. Red path. Consistent. Hard work. Conscious. Content. Collaborate. Society, not social enterprise. Community. Um, Connecting the disconnected. Fabulous, Peggy. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us and thank you for our audience to join us. You can also subscribe to Wisdom Exchange TV so you receive each new interview notification in your inbox. Please share this interview by going to the share button located on the page. You can read, listen, or watch this interview. If you know someone who has a significant social impact in business, education, civic service, or advocacy, let us know. Visit the guest tab on wisdomexchangetv.com and submit information. Our research team will take it from there. Lastly, if you have contributed to the community, or you know someone who's contributed to the community, celebrate them by joining the movement tab on youmewe.ca, your Contribution Counts campaign. For every contribution listed, the YouMeWe Social Impact Group will invest in a women's education or business, moving her from poverty to prosperity. Now, before we say goodbye, I do want to ask our guests, her words of wisdom for our audience regarding making a conscious contribution to society. Do you have any words of wisdom? That um, we always have to look for those gaps and make sure we, we have a responsibility to help fill them. And so let's make our communities healthy and well. Thank you so much, Peggy. Until next time, make sure your contribution counts. This episode is sponsored by Make Your Contribution Count for You, Me, We a book written by Suzanne F. Stevens. It's time to act. Let this book be your guide to having a sustainable social impact while living your most meaningful life. Thanks for listening.